When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, Heard Tell Show, it's Friday and you made it again, folks. Congratulations, the end of another week. It's February the 11th, year of our Lord 2022. Hope you're having a great week. Hope you have good plans for the weekend. A lot to cover today on the program. Uh, We're going to check in. Remember Team Kraken? You know, those crack lawyers. And I mean crack in the terms like broken and not functional. Uh, Some news out of them. They're getting their hands slapped down in a real court by real people that understand the law. We'll cover that a little bit later on in the program. Uh, We're going to talk about masks and mask mandates and public wearing of masks, and specifically masks in schools. Uh, They are ending at a rapid pace. We'll talk about why the sudden shift in that, what it means, and how it doesn't mean that the underlying problems that we learned about the education system go away now that we're going to stop arguing over masks. Touch on that in a little bit. Also got a great story to end the program about a feller who figured out how to do a business model that also gives back. Cool old story out of Colorado. Our guest today, an exceptional guy. We love having him on the program. Anytime things in the sports world cross over into culture and politics, we get him on. We get him when we can. Josh G. Bocaller, a great guy, a sports writer out of Chicago. We have him on the program today talking NFL. The NFL has two major issues going on right now in the week leading up to the Super Bowl, and they have nothing to do with the game. The Brian Flores situation, accusations about racial discrimination, also accusations about things that would affect their newfound love of gambling. And if you think this is, well, that's just a sports story, you don't understand what the NFL is exactly. This is the number one TV show on four different channels. This is a cultural phenomenon. There is now data and stats that a quarter of America will be betting on the Super Bowl, and somewhere between 30 and 35% of America will be watching the Super Bowl. The NFL is bigger than sports. It's a cultural icon, and what it does matters, because as Josh told us the last time he joined us a couple months ago, it is a reflection of culture. So every time a culture war type thing shows up in the NFL, we need to pay attention of it because it means the rest of the world outside of culture and politics is paying attention to those issues. So Josh Buckhalter on the program today, always love having him. Great insight. Make sure you follow him. But first, um, let's talk about this. The story broke all over social media. It started out in the Washington Free Beacon that uh, the 
Biden administration was spending government money to buy crack pipes and send them to drug addicts. Now, that's not what's happening. I know it's fun to just push the send button on stuff like this, but even the Washington Free Beacons piece had one unnamed source that said the quote-unquote safe smoking kits was analogous to sending crack pipes to people. Now, what these kits really are is they're what's called harm reduction measures. Some of them did have a glass pipe. The ones in Canada does when we researched into it. The ones in America usually don't because, one, they're expensive, but these aren't exactly glass smoking pipes. These are more like sleeves to go over existing pipes for hygiene reasons. The kits that the Biden administration is going to be sending out actually just has a rubber ring for people when they use their drug paraphernalia to try to cut down on things like hepatitis C and HIV, which is endemic in drug uh, addicts and in people that are suffering from substance abuse circles. Now, I know a lot of people just want to go, why are we giving them and enabling them? Okay, they call this harm reduction for a reason. You cannot take an addict from zero to 60 and then take them from 60 back to zero. That's not how this works. Here's your problem, and here's why I get a little frustrated with this. We went through this in the 90s with needle exchanges. We've been talking about the same thing when you talk about public health things, like communicative diseases, like safer sex initiatives, like COVID. We just did this with COVID with things like masks and everything else. We want buzzwords and one-liners to make us feel good when it comes to public health, but we don't want to talk about the nitty-gritty part of actually helping people that need help and some people that don't want help but need help anyway because what they're doing affects all society. So let me preface it this way. If you think harm reduction measures are not a worthy expenditure of $30 million of government money, and by the way, this is a grant. This is going to states and municipalities to be used as they see fit, and there's a list. There's a PDF. You can look it up. It's actually linked to their credit, the Washington Free Beacon piece, linked to it. Go in the PDF, search it. You won't find the word crack pipe anywhere. You'll find safe smoking kit only once because these are harm reduction measures, and they're important harm reduction measures. Our friend Keith Humphreys, who's been on this program before, we need to get him back on, expert on addiction, expert on addiction, uh, great guy. He tweeted it this way. He said, worthy of debate, but let's keep perspective. The federal government spends about $7 million a minute. It is unlikely an event that even 3% of this money goes to a pipe-like thing. This is one-time spending allocation will be over in the time it takes you to read this tweet. No, the federal government isn't spending $30 million on crack pipes. They're spending $30 million in grants to municipalities to try to have harm reduction. And in a lot of these cases, you need harm reduction to cut down on things like hepatitis C and like HIV that can spill out in the greater community, which causes more money in the healthcare system, which causes more problems in the criminal justice system. It affects everybody. Addiction has a blast radius. We talk about it over and over again. So no, these harm reduction programs are not just enabling, they actually help. And putting stigmas on top of them do not help. All that is doing is making it easier for us to have one-liners about crack pipes and Hunter Biden and whatever else nonsense people are putting on it instead of dealing with the ugly working end of addiction where it's really, really hard to help these people. And it's messy and it's not clean. And society doesn't want to look at that. So they'd rather just do one-liners and say, well, those addicts deserve what's coming to them. Because if you get to the bottom of a lot of the rhetoric online, that's what they really mean. Won't they just die in peace over there so they don't interrupt my timeline? But that's not the right way to do things. Just because they have an addiction doesn't mean they're not people and they're not citizens. We can spend a little money on harm reduction 
And a lot of cases that harm reduction has to come first before you can do more serious measures like rehabilitation, like getting them into clinics, like getting them back into functional society. Don't let your priors and stigmas affect you into thinking those people are not people anymore. Because if you go to those drug addicts have what's coming to them, will they just please die so they don't show up in my timeline and I can go back to sending cat pictures and yelling about Congress, you've stopped seeing them as people. And if that's the case, and if that's why you're against harm reduction, shame on you. Why is the drug problem never fixed? Because of how we're reacting to things like crack pipe, Twitter, and Facebook posts the last two days. We want one-liners. We don't want to get our hands dirty fixing the problem. More Hurtel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. There's an old saying uh, came from Faulkner that it happened gradually, then suddenly. Uh, the mask mandates and mask use are getting really, really close to the suddenly portion of going away. Uh, school boards across the country are starting to repeal them. Uh, and a whole bunch of northern uh, states, especially bluer states, are starting to repeal them. It sure seems like the dam has broke on mask wearing in public. We will see how it happens. I know the school board uh, where my two youngest children still go to public school, they just announced that the mandate will end at the beginning of next week. A lot of other school boards have the same thing. This has been fascinating to watch in media, of course, because uh, other states have done this earlier. Florida has done it much earlier. Uh, Virginia did it a couple of weeks ago to much hubbub. Now it seems like everybody's doing it and it's being treated very, very differently in the media from the Washington Post. Quote, there is no question whether it was last year's elections, whether it was getting a sense of the pulse of the state. People are frustrated. They are frightened. Uh, Murphy, a Democrat who nearly lost his re-election bid last November, said in an interview. Murphy, of course, is the governor of New Jersey. Um, there's a learning loss in our kids, mental health and stress among kids and adults, folks yearning for some sense of normally, and count me, by the way, among them. That's the backdrop as Murphy, long one of the nation's most aggressive governors on health restrictions, announced this week he was lifting New Jersey's school mask mandate, one of a slew of governors in his party to do so, as polls suggest voters are wary of the restrictions. And last November's elections highlight Democrats' vulnerability on the issues. State officials say the decisions are driven by data, showing that the worst of the Omicron surge has passed, but acknowledge they must also weigh a weary public's tolerance for pandemic life. Even as the Biden administration continues to require mask mandates, many of the biggest states led by Democrats are abruptly taking a different track. California, Oregon, Delaware, and Connecticut joined New Jersey in announcing a partial end to mask mandates Monday. The governors of Rhode Island and Massachusetts announced plans Wednesday to end school mask mandates, while the executives of New York and Illinois said they would scrap mask mandate requirements for businesses but are still reviewing the schools. Washington announced it would end an outdoor mask mandate, and the indoor mask mandate was under review. Several of these Democratic governors have stressed that their constituents need to live with the virus, echoing rhetoric that their Republican counterparts adopted earlier in the pandemic when they declined to take statewide measures to curb the Delta and Omicron surges. Let's just stop right there. Uh, let's all be adults here. Uh, the messaging throughout this pandemic by our government and our expert betters has been horrid. The idea that they are just following the science has never held up very well because the science sure was speculative on where it went. We had it in my own neighborhood here where we have the schools across the street from the shopping center that has things like a grocery store 
in it so that if you go in the school, we have a deadly pandemic. If you have the exact same people a thousand yards across the street in the grocery store, everybody can function just fine. We did that for the better part of 14, 15 months with the schools completely closed on virtual learning. That may have had some biases behind it, but people can just look at those two things and go, this is ridiculous. And oh, by the way, why can't teachers and other people work while these people are checking them out at the grocery store? I know that's not fair. I know the science, all that. I, I'm just telling you how people view things. It never made sense to them. The school mandate and the masks and the mandates to school have been heavily debated, and we're not going to relitigate it all here. Um, but the truth of the matter is all these mandates are going away now. Part of it's because Omicron did what we had hoped on this program it would do. It went through fast, and it went through with a much lower severity in most people because of things like the virus, because of things like people already have having it. Um, it looks like it went through quickly and it ended quickly. That's why we were critical of President Biden's plans to mail out testing kits and stuff. We said the way this is going to go, they're going to come out by the time this thing is ebbed back down. Now, that doesn't mean we may not have another variant. doesn't mean we don't need to be vigilant. You are in charge of your own health and your family's health. So if you have major health issues like I do, plan accordingly. If you want to wear a mask, you wear a mask. Nobody's stopping you. But the mask mandates as policy sure look like they're ending. And while there was some science to that and there's some overlap and there's some coincidence, let's not pretend like this isn't because it's an election year on top of it all. Let's also not pretend the biggest thing here is we are in year two of this. People are just tired of it. People want to move on. A lot of moving parts. When you're discussing these items online and with your family and friends, please keep your bearing. If somebody wants to wear a mask, you don't need to mock them or start a fight with them. They may have legitimate reasons for doing so. People that don't wear a mask, you don't need to hunt them down and demand why they aren't. A lot of this can be solved with just some basic dignity and decency and a little bit of give and take. People have to pandemic a little differently than you do, and that's okay. And as these mandates go away and the mask mandate and requirements go away and the school mask mandates go away, which is very good because this has been something that we now have data has been affecting children, needed as it may be, it just did. And we have all data in the world that these children are now behind because of the virtual school and other things. Let's get busy getting to work, fixing the problem and not relitigating the mask wars. Again, let's be vigilant. Let's keep our bearing. Let's put the focus where it needs to be having an education that actually educates children, not as a political prop or a performance prop or a massive job and daycare program, which is how we've been treating the school system. Masks is a side note in history on issues we already had. The pandemic exposed issues our education already had, and they're not going to go away just because the masks are. Keep your eye on the ball, folks. Let's get a better education system. Let's have a better community, and let's have a better country and world for it. More Hurtel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. He's back. Uh, our buddy, anytime we have uh, culture and politics stuff start to spill over from the sports world, he is our go-to. Uh, he is the host of the very good Triple Zeros podcast. You need to check it out. He's also a writer all over the place. He is an expert and follower of teams in Chicago and Atlanta, for which we pity and sympathize with him. How are you, Just Buck Coulter? We appreciate you coming back, buddy. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Oh, fantastic. Um, okay, so last time I talked to you, been a minute. We were dealing with the John Gruden emails, and you told me, and I heard you, but I guess I wasn't listening because I didn't really process it, 
uh, you proffered that a lot of people around the league, the NFL, a lot of people in sports media felt like there was a little bit, not that Gruden didn't deserve what was coming his way for what he did, but they said there's a much bigger problem here. There's some scapegoating here. There's a lot more stuff underneath all this. Boy, howdy, was there more stuff underneath that? And now here it is. Yeah, um, I'm assuming you're alluding to the Brian Flores uh, lawsuit that uh, came yeah, out. That, that happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, and honestly, this is it's it's not even that I was proffering anything as much as just the tea leaves. That's what's been happening for a long time. It's been stories that have been done about it on basically yearly. Um, every time we go through the hiring cycle, they they, they bring it up. Um, but this is the first I think we've seen this kind of legal action uh, and would give this kind of attention, especially uh, Flores being a very high profile coach um, in a very high profile cycle in the most connected time. I think we talk about this all the time on um, how connected we are, and how much information everybody has at their fingertips. It's just the, 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 the perfect mixture of events for it to be as big of a story as it is right now. Yeah. It felt like at some point there was going to be that guy that blew it up. Is that what it is with the Brian Flores situation? Is, is this the damn break? Is this the guy? Is this the one guy he's like, all right, I'm out of F's to give. I'll take the bullet. Somebody's got to do something here. Is that what this is? Well, it certainly sounds like that. Um, it, he, he's coming off as though he's prepared to go the full run with this and, and, uh, and take it that, that way. He needs people to join him. He's had a couple. Hugh Jackson seemed like he was going to join along with him, but then kind of walked back what his initial statements were. Um, we'll see what his support level is going forward. But as we know, the NFL is a multi-billion dollar entity and is going to take more than one coach who is at this point still doing a lot of it's still at a he said he said situation. So um, he needs a lot more support from the inside. He's gotten some vocally. We'll see how much goes when they get when they actually bring this to court. If they bring this to court, by the way. Yeah, and the reason that is, we're talking to Josh Buckholder, the reason you say if is because this is a lawsuit, so you have things like discovery. Uh, there's going to be motions to dismiss. There's going to be fighting over discovery of what can and can't get in there. There'll be settlement offers, I'm sure, that are going to be very big numbers. Uh, then you get into things like non-disclosure agreements, what comes out. This is step four of a 600-step process, so I think you're right about that. Let, let's start big picture, though, because we've talked about this before. The NFL is bigger than sport now. This is the number one TV show on four channels. This is a multi-billion dollar business, like you said. There is now numbers that one in four Americans are going to be gambling on the Super Bowl this year. We've all seen the ads. The two components of the Brian Flores story, race and the accusations of losing on purpose, which goes to the gambling side of it, these are two very, very dangerous things for the NFL to be dealing with, even as big and as powerful as they are, isn't it? Oh, these are the ones that undo corporations uh, because they are they're probably uh, there's an, an uncountable amount of, of examples where you could say that this is what's happening, proving that it's often harder. But in an era where the, the so much is decided by the court of public opinion rather than actual courts, you can lose your entire face just because of something like this now. That's not to say they shouldn't or that there shouldn't be something done. I'm just saying, you know, this is what happens in, in these types of situations. And honestly, the gambling part is funny that you bring that up because the gambling part has gotten a bit more run of late than the race part in store in Flores' accusations. And I think that's that's kind of along the lines of what he's trying to say here. But, you know, I guess you just kind of have to go through it as they get through the parts of the of the the lawsuit itself. And the reason the gambling one is so bad. Um, I kind of jumped on it when I was like, man, that race thing's ugly, but that gambling thing, 
the gambling thing, we just talked about it. Uh, the NFL has hitched its wagon to, to pro gambling, to legalize gambling. There's just no doubt about it. The idea that you have owners and coaches throwing games, which is basically what he's alluding here, that uh, Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, was offering him money to lose games on purpose. That's an existential threat. Uh, I know we had the CTE stuff, but even beyond, this is a threat to the league uh, regulatory-wise, criminal justice-wise. Like, this is a threat to the league, and I suspect they will move very, very quickly to try to get this snuffed out. Well, we know they don't care about legal issues, um, but I will say you're right in that, in that it it ruins their facade, right? Because they want to protect the, the, uh, the integrity of the shield. That's what they always want to protect. Uh, this calls into question the validity of all the results that we see. Um, I heard it brought up that people still want to believe in what they're watching is real, right? And and we already have seen when you had the betting in basketball with the referee with uh, Tim Donahue, was that name? I, I always forget his name, um, who was gambling on the games. You have uh, 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 Pete Rose can't get into the Hall of Fame in baseball for gambling. The, NBA, the NFL is something at this scale where an owner is paying out and, and dictating to not win games. That's something that, A, would probably lead to his removal, uh, and then B would severely hurt what you just said has become a dominant force in our in our every week. It took away church. It took away church's day. Right. So, I, I mean, this is huge. This is this is I guess some say it's probably before the fall, because, like I said, they don't really care about the legal issue, but they care more about what people will think about them because of this than they do about that, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think um, unlike some of the other issues where they've been able to just move on from them, I think they're going to have to have a head to deal with the gambling issue. Somebody's going to have to go on a pike here. Is that going to be Ross? Is that going to be Flores? Is this going to be some underling, a GM or assistant GM? Who do you think is going to get the blame for this? Because that, again, that's something that can wreck your whole league, no matter how powerful you are. We, you know, we have, we've had college basketball scandals with that. We've had baseball scandals like P. Rose. If that comes out in the NFL and they don't squash that really quick, I think that could be major, major trouble for them. So who's going to get the bullet for that, do you think? Uh, unfortunately, I think it ends up being Flores, and here's why. Uh, they have said that the financial aspect should be the easiest part to prove. So if that's the case, then it's a, it's probably a done deal for him. He's probably got he's he's good in his in his side. But if that part is is problematic for him to prove in court that he was offered money for for you know losing games, that calls into question the entire rest of the of the lawsuit. And we already know we've already seen in the past how difficult it is for coaches and individuals in in particular in the workforce to prove allegations of racism and 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 uh, prejudice. So I think that a lot hinges on the gambling part. So while I'll say why I said that it's gotten a lot more attention, it's probably the way he kind of needs it to go because that's so much of the lawsuit is going to hinge on that because the NFL cares about the, uh, the appearances and the rest of us care about the legal side of it. So it's, this is, this is only the beginning of what's going to probably go on for a long time, unless they do handle out the hand out those large, large amounts of money, uh, behind closed doors. Yeah. Talking to Josh Buckholder. Here's my theory on it. I think the gambling part of it was his doomsday file for when they put him out the door and, and shut him out. When that all broke down, the Belichick thing, the, the text messages, all that, I think that was his doomsday file. He's like, all right, I'm going all in on this, and this is my weapon to protect myself where I'm taking somebody with me, and they at least can't just dismiss me out of hand and blackball me out without any kind of fight whatsoever. That's just an assumption, but I think it's probably a 
good one. It is. The only reason I would only push back, I would offer against that is that he was a hot coaching candidate. So even yeah. if he was pushed out the door there, it's not like he would be out the door and on his, on, on his behind for long. Um, also, this is a, almost like a, a final move, right? This is almost like something that you might not come back from, a la Colin Kaepernick. When you go after the league, it's very hard to get yourself back in. And on top of that, he went, and I don't, they keep saying that he went after Belichick or he exposed Belichick. I think Belichick was just kind of a useful pawn in this whole thing, but even still, that's probably not going to look good in Belichick's eyes. And so now you have one of the larger figures in the game, probably not necessarily in your corner anymore, on top of the entire NFL looking at you with a side eye, again, at a time where you were a hot candidate. So that's where I, it's it's so tricky because he's still been a candidate for jobs even with this happening, but he also has been, pass, has been passed up for a couple of spots. So as I always say, because I am the anti-hot take sports take person, um, we have to wait and see what happens. But it's it's fascinating how much how quickly this all has escalated. How ironic, maybe that ain't the right term for it, but how ironic is that the, the thing that lit this fuse was Bill Belichick actually trying to be personable to another human being? Well, by all accounts, he's a nice guy off the field. <laughs> right. And I, I mean, I know this, the, the public persona with the press isn't completely horrible, but I mean, if you were writing I, that as a script in a movie, they'd throw it out and be like, nah, that's, that's not what would kick something like that off. Mine would be, my headline would be, Bill Belichick doesn't know his personnel because he sent it to the wrong Brian. Yeah, that, that to me is the biggest flub of not that he said it, not that he was trying, just that he sent it to the wrong Bill Belichick of all the task master himself of all people. Mr. Attention to detail. Exactly. Yeah. KYP. Know your personnel. <laughs> yeah. Meaning Brian Diebold, who got a different job, different coach. Um, talking to Josh Buckholder, we're going to keep talking about this because we're going to get in back into the racial aspect of it. The other accusations that Flores has brought up. Uh, it comes. This is this is becoming a long running problem with the league. It's not going to go away. This isn't going to help. We'll be back with Josh Buckholder on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Josh Buckholter is illuminating us with his non hot take hot takes. His speciality. He's a good guy. Make sure you're following him on the Twitter and wherever he writes and his triple zero podcast, which is excellent. He does good work. Okay. The gambling stuff has come larger lately, but when this first came out, it was framed as uh, the race issue, the lack. We have a majority minority league, uh, 70 some odd percent of the players are black. Uh, there are zero majority owners. There's only a handful of head coaches. The optics of this have been bad for a very, very long time. Then you had the Brian Flores situation raised up. And then you had, and let's just call it what it is, you had seven straight kind of interchangeable white coaches hired right in quick succession right after that. We talked about the legal part. Optics-wise, how bad is this right now? Because I don't think they could have scheduled it to be any worse than what it played out, could they? No, and that's what makes it all so fascinating to me is that Flores has momentum on his side that wasn't all of his own doing. Um, And then to have the Lovey Smith pivot out in Houston is kind of just like the cherry on top because they were all set by all accounts to hire Josh McCown to be their head coach coming from his high school, his son's high school football team to be their head coach. Uh, they pivot to Lovey Smith and just want to take a quick moment to say, let's not slander Lovey Smith to, to, to point out the flaws in their methods out in Houston. I think that's been a little bit overdone, but um, Lovey's my guy. Um, but I, I just feel like it's a, a perfect, like I said before, a perfect confluence of events for Flores and that, it's all under the spotlight. The gambling thing brought the attention to it. Now we're all paying attention to paying attention to it again. But 
it's been brought up before. There's been attention on it before. And that's why I said it's so important for Flores to get some kind of backing from those who are inside the league right now from him. Now, we've seen some more more uh, assistants speak up. They have to be willing to do that when it becomes time to say it in front of a, a judge. Yeah, I'm talking to Josh Bellcalder. All right, you went there, so I'll just straight ask you. Uh, you're, you do beat reporting. You have contacts. You talk to people. The Lovey Smith thing, everybody respects him as a coach, and he's a great man uh, by all accounts. Everybody loves Lovey on a personal level. Was there a phone call involved down to Houston of, hey, this, this needs to happen, or what do you think happened there? Not privy to any conversations in that regard, but it's highly suspicious, I guess. Again, remember, like I said, so much now is has seemingly been dictated by the court of public opinion and yeah. optics, and they went from – wooing Josh McCown out of and wanting other teams to also want to woo Josh McCown to all of a sudden hiring Lovey Smith, who's been in house the entire time, but the, the interest in him had not been previously reported. That's what makes it seem so iffy on top of all the other stuff that's going on with Houston. Again, Houston is a microcosm of the NFL and just that it was a perfect sequence of events that led up to this moment that now helps the Brian Flores situation for the NFL at large. Like it's, it's crazy how much, that is going on. This has to deal with Deshaun Watson. Like there's, there's so, so I don't, I don't know if they're, if they are so much trying to pivot to uh, abide by the Rooney rule in that part, as much as they are not trying to hire Josh McCown right now, you can get Lovey Smith in there and he can groom McCown to be the next guy. So I don't know if it's trying to hire, you know, to satisfy, to satiate that crowd as much as, okay, we won't, we won't hire McCown right now. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And it brings up another point I want to ask you because, you know, we're in the narrative business. We're in the storytelling business. I do politics, you do sports, but sports is just like politics. When you go to write a story, you got to have a headline, you got to have a hook, you got to have your SEO. Sometimes are we too, and I understand there's prejudices in the racial element. Is some of this just some rank incompetence because we're turning over a fifth of the league's coaches every year? The coaching process isn't exactly going swimmingly anyway. So is some of this just rank incompetence, even though we have these billion-dollar teams and these billion-dollar businesses, they're just not very good at picking coaches. And then you start putting a little bit of bias or historical prejudice or whatever else you want to call on it. It just makes it even more glaring. Are we missing that portion of this as well? We are. Um, when you look at other leagues, the NBA is often compared because how large of a, of a uh, black coach population that they have. When you look at the major, when you look at Major League Baseball, they've had similar issues as the NFL with their managers haven't always been representative of their player base. So when you look at the NFL and how many times this has been brought up, I think that's where the difference is. It's been brought up more in the NFL than any other league, obviously, because the NFL has kind of fixed this issue and the MLB just kind of does what it wants to do. It doesn't really care about anybody's concerns for it, that people are kind of honed in now, I think, is what makes it unique. Like I said, it, it all to me is is boiling down to how many things are happening at the same time because you have all this attention on it because you have what's happening in Houston because you have the league turning over so many coaches and still not bringing in the coaches that people are bringing are talking about right that's why it it just it makes this seem different than other times well again I think it still all will hinge on who else he can get to corroborate his evidence that gambling aspect of it not blowing a complete hole in his, his, the rest of it and how far Flores is truly willing to take it before there gets any resolve. Because as we saw with the Kaepernick situation, once they got behind closed doors, a settlement was reached and that kind of, that story has kind of just become a punchline at this point. So 
people are overlooking it, but I, it's, it's almost kind of going by design. Yeah, and I don't think Flores is going to get a, a major Nike contract like Kaepernick gets to fall back on also. Uh, let me put it to you this way, because here's where this kind of bothers me, and some people might say this is unrelated, but it's how the NFL does business. It wasn't that long ago, eight, nine years ago, where football was dying, it was in trouble, and little boys were going to stop playing football because their moms weren't going to allow it because of CTE and concussions. The NFL moved quickly. They changed a lot of rules. They've completely changed how the offensive game is played based off of concussions and hits, and that issue's pretty much gone away. This is a league that is reactive. They can fix stuff fast when they want to, but that, to me, also makes it glaring of we have this known issue and there is no fix other than the Rooney rule, which you can argue was no doubt well-intentioned, but it kind of made everything worse and brought it to a head. That just glares to me like, hey, they can fix stuff fast when they want to, is this an impetus to where they do one of those things where they're like, okay, we finally have to fix this. Let's fix it and make it go away and move on with the game. That, unfortunately, I think that would only come about if there is a hit to the bottom line. Um, if that was the case, I think that we would have seen something like that with the Kaepernick situation. Now you could say that their, their settlement is, is that, in, you know, is taking care of it. But what you're talking about is something that is also pleasing to the eye. And I don't know if we'll see that here. Um, Again, unless there is some kind of big hit to them, I don't see them having any reason to do anything different than what they have done. Uh, Unfortunately, because so many of the owners look alike, there is even less chance of somebody speaking up in Flores' favor. I've always said, though, it's a pipeline issue and not necessarily the selection issue. You got to give them more than and and, and I don't want to diminish the impact of people who are making that choice. Make the right choice. We also have to do more to get more black coaches in position to succeed in that realm. Um, I think as a John Thompson coach, uh, the, the Hoyas legendary basketball coach. Uh, he always talked about when he brought up issues of equality, he said, until I'm given the right to fail like everybody else, then we're not really equal here. Mm-hmm. Um, and he took it that angle. When you look at it, the other thing that bothers people with this coaching thing is you have what they call the retreads, which is probably a little harsh. You have mediocre coaches getting second opportunities, third opportunities, and the coaches of color are not getting those opportunities. Is that part of this pipeline thing you're talking about of like, look, it's almost like a rotation. And until you get half a dozen or a dozen guys in that rotation of those interviews, this this just ain't going to change no matter what policy you bring into effect. And that's exactly why I said, let's pause on, on slandering Lovey Smith. Uh, Let's not forget Lovey Smith. And I'm going to, Drill down on this because it's, it exemplifies what I'm talking about. Lovey Smith took uh, the Bears to the Super Bowl with Rex Grossman as his quarterback. Okay, uh, Lovey Smith then went on to he's got a winning record still in Bears history. Got fired on the losing season. I'm not gonna and three and three in the postseason with the Bears. I'm not gonna try to act like he was he was great, but let's not act like anything since him has been any better. He went down to Tampa and that was a complete mess. Uh, they did end up with Jameis Winston, who had a good seasons for them. Whatever they built the core that they have now started with with Lovey Smith. Um, I will say that he did not have great quarterback play there. That is a theme that is also along with the with the black coach not getting a chance to fail. That failure often leads to those star quarterbacks and those star quarterbacks are what takes you to the to the to the, the promised land, right? It's not a secret in the NFL. Everybody knows what the most important position is. The amount of black coaches that have gotten a chance with that quarterback 
pales in comparison to those of of coaches of other of other ethnicities and that is where the issue comes up because if you can't have a chance to go through the the downtimes and then get to see the prosper you know the next guy gets all the credit but you were down there like that's I think that's where Hugh Jackson's issue was he was down there doing all the dirty work now he was a special case because I don't think he was great anyway but the point remains that you have to be able to I would, I would like to see those coaches get chances with those quarterbacks as well. And that's why I say you need to have more coaches in that side of the ball so they can't give them that whole, oh, well, that, that guy can't coach a quarterback. We need an offensive coach. Okay, let's get some more black quarterbacks who they don't want to have as quarterbacks anyway be coordinators and call for those, for those uh, players and be able to, be, to, to step into those roles. Yeah. Talking to Josh Buckhalter, we always bring him in when culture and politics and sports collides, which keeps, seems to keep happening. Uh, way to put a bow on this. Um, we're having a debate over the Supreme Court pick right now because President Biden promised to get a black woman. Uh, people were trying to raise an issue with that. And my point of that was like, well, your argument would hold sand if there was no unqualified black judges to bring on that were women. And we have a good long list of those. We have a lot. It seems like a lot of young black coaches coming up in the NFL ranks that are either holding themselves back or aren't getting a run. I'm talking about like the Byron left, which is the Eric, the enemies, these people. Do you think they're hesitant because of the Flores situation and they're just kind of stepping back and waiting to see what happens? Or do you think that they're kind of getting pushed to the side because everybody else is waiting to see what happens? Because it sure seemed like they were all lined up for jobs and then just nothing happened. That can't be coincidental, right? Left, which I believe was because of Trent Balky, the general manager down in Jacksonville. So that's a unique situation. And I'm a left, which guy, by the way, all the way back to Marshall, because I'm a West Virginia guy. I have no problem with him not going to Jacksonville. I want him to get a chance, just not <laughs> there. So just bias on the table, my friend. No, that's fair. And that's fair. I just would love to see it for, for nostalgia's sake. Um, but I get what you're, what you're talking about, because, yeah. Um, and then with the enemy, he's been passed over a few times now. I think he has some of that Matt Nagy stink on him. His own past has, has brought up some flags. So that's also a unique situation. But there are coaches who are hesitant to even go out into the process for fear of getting passed over just because they're a token interview. And then that being held against them the next time around because, oh, man, this, this guy didn't get hired. Uh, maybe he's not really worthy candidate. And to the point of th that the whole argument is, those coaches don't often get the chance to come back into the hiring cycle. Raheem, uh, Raheem Morris, I want to say his name was the coach who, who came after uh, Tony Dungy down in Tampa Bay. Haven't heard much from him since. Um, Mike Tomlin, I think, is one of the few coaches who became like who went from relatively unknown, got raised to a prominent role. But look where he is. He's in a uh, situation where they don't do that. And the, it's the, the origins of the Rooney rule. That's why he's still in a position that he's in today. It's it's a problem that's existed for a long time. One that's been brought up before, I, I, I just hope that it does bring some change, but I don't know if it will unless there's a, an effect to the bottom line. And is that why for probably for the black coaches and the coaches of color and other ethnicities for that matter that may be coming up, is that why the Belichick thing is probably the most freezing thing for them because that just proved all their fears of, yeah, there's a network we're not privy to that knew things that we didn't know. I mean, that's just the basic human thing. And any, anybody's ever had a job or gone for a job interview, you know how that feels. Because a lot of people been there like, hey, this this was settled before I ever walked in the room. And that can't be a good feeling for them on any level. And then you put the racial stuff on top of it. It's just got to make it worse, right? Well, and then it also lends to the image aspect for the league, because now you have back channel things being discussed and probably deals being worked out that they have long denied have happened. And it just it's all, again, that perfect confluence of events.
Josh Buckhalter, we love having him on. He gets right to it. He does great work. Let folks know where they can find you and what you got going on, my friend, so we can get your follower count up because you are criminally underfollowed on all your platforms. You do good work, sir. Let them know where to find you. I appreciate that. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Josh G. Buck. Uh, read the stuff, Soaring Down South. Last Road on Pro Football and Pimping Ain't Easy. And uh, actually, for Soaring Down South right now, we are heavy into the trade win stuff, talking about the the deal that just went down today with C.J. McCollum and, uh, and and going to New Orleans. So just follow me there, and I'll try to keep you apprised of all the, the breaking news. Yeah, he does good work. Uh, we're going to keep having you back anytime some of these sports issues come up on culture and politics because you do great work, and you're not hot take, hot takes. You're right up my alley, buddy. I appreciate you, my friend. Thanks for having me on always. Anytime. We'll have you back soon, sir. I heard tell. Welcome back. I'm Andrew Donaldson. So glad you're spending part of your Friday with us. Hey, you remember the Kraken? Yeah, all those crazy grifters that were trying to overturn the election and latching on. Uh, Some of them in the Trump orbit. Some of them kind of showed up on their own. Uh, well, they're back in court and it is not going well. Um, this is out of above the law.com, uh, quoting here after us district judge, Linda V Parker issued a blistering sanctions order on the lawyers in the Michigan Kraken LOL lawsuit, Sidney Powell and Howard Kleinhandler are taking matters into their own hands. They've apparently parted ways with attorney Donald Campbell, who was not a potted plant and will be representing themselves in order to appeal Judge Parker's order, which means that there's no attorney or even a rational adult intermediating between Team Kraken and the Sixth Circuit in the dispute over attorney's fees and bar referral for their efforts to overturn Biden's win in Michigan. So far, it's going swimmingly. The 86-page appeal and the links are here. Please, we always tell you, read these legal documents yourself. A mere 4,681 words over the 13,000-word limit is peak Kraken, which is to say that it's total bat guano come for the mischaracterization of rules of evidence stay for the ad hominem attacks on a sitting federal judge Powell and klein handler will go to their graves insisting that they had no obligation to review the laughable affidavits they lifted from other cases and submitted to the court that's a big no-no by the way neither for credibility nor to determine whether the conduct alleged was even illegal quote sanctioning lawyers for bringing such cases because they have not crossed every t and dotted every i at the time they filed the complaint will deter future lawyers from bringing such cases casting a chilling pall over such advocacy hold on a second now i'm not a lawyer i didn't go to law school but the point of doing it as a lawyer instead of just some joe off the street is to cross all the t's and dot all the i's that's literally why we have lawyers continuing They huff and add that as attorneys, this is a quote, attorneys are not required to have any evidence, sworn or otherwise, beyond a client's say-so before bringing suit, which is technically correct, but not really ethically or how it actually works, but nevertheless. That is perhaps not an entirely apt description of copy-pasting an affidavit from another lawsuit in which some dog walker claims to have seen an unusually cheerful couple hand a bag to the UPS guy, which he suspects of being delivery of fraudulent ballots. Let me read that paragraph one more time. That is perhaps not an entirely apt description for copy-pasting an affidavit from another lawsuit in which some dog walker claims to have seen an unusually cheerful couple hand a bag to the UPS guy, which he suspects of being a delivery of fraudulent ballots. That is why they brought a lawsuit, and they didn't even do an original one. They lifted it. Continuing on the piece from above the law. 
The trial court was similarly incensed that the lawyers failed to disclose that their so-called expert witness, Joshua Merritt, a.k.a. Spider, I'm not making this up, I'm just reading it, folks, turns out to not have been a, quote, formal electronic intelligence analysis with the 305th military intelligence described in their briefs. Indeed, they seem to have gone to some lengths to conceal his real identity and that of multiple other witnesses, but that's an Asada parenthetical. Team Crack <laughs> insists that there was no evidence of Merritt's lack of an avatar advertised expertise, despite the fact that the Washington Post tracked it down almost immediately. They even go so far as to insist that they had no obligation to correct the record with the court because, quote, there's no pleading due during the period. Counsel would have had to file a special notice advising the district court of information that was already national news. They are arguing that they couldn't have changed it because the thing they swear they had no ability to know was already national news in writing in a court document. Team Crack continues, nor is it entirely clear that even January 6th was the drop-dead date, they insist. Had Michigan been ordered to withdraw its certification, which we've already espoused at length on this program, that was never going to happen, would have been illegal, and there is no mechanism to do so. Uh, had Michigan ordered its withdrawal, its certification after that date, Congress could have reconsidered its vote. We already know that's all BS. It goes on for quite some time. But the closing paragraph explaining that the award of attorney's fees and referral to the bar for the maximum possible sanctions with a clear purpose of depriving them of their livelihood, duh, seems particularly ill-advised. This is a quote from what Team Kraken wrote. I will read it verbatim. The district court has improved upon Voltaire's observation that tyrants have always some slight shade of virtue. They support the laws before destroying them. It managed to shred the Constitution at the very same time, it wrapped itself in the flag. In the canonical account of treachery towards a sovereign, it is one of the supporters of the pretenders to the throne who purposes, quote, the first thing we do. By the way, this is the third quote and a quote in this sentence. The first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. Shakespeare, Henry VI, Part Two, Act Four, Scene Two. That's because Quote, Shakespeare knew that lawyers were the primary guardians of individual liberty in democratic England. J.B. Hopkins, the first thing we do, let's get Shakespeare right. This is the citation. Quote, Americans know this too. Not often at a loss for words, folks. These people are nuts. This is not an appeal. This is a fundraising document masquerading as an appeal so that they can claim their victimhood status. Thankfully, Almost nobody is listening and or caring except legal buffs and people like me who are not only laughing at them, but pointing and laughing at them. I hope they get the maximum sanctions possible. I hope they don't ever get anywhere near the law and or a television camera ever again. In fact, it would be good for the country if none of us ever hear from any of these folks ever again. Please, God, let it be so and be done with the ridiculousness of Team Kraken. More Herd Tell right after this. Now, hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. You know, we always try to end on a happier or lighter note because we always have to deal with so much heavy stuff today. This is a cool story. It comes out of NBC 11 News, uh, Grand Junction, Colorado. A man with ties to the Western Slope has built a business that he says is aimed at giving back to organizations that have made a difference in the communities while making it easier for people to be generous. Stephen Wesley, who moved to Ridgeline while he was a freshman in high school, is the CEO of a tea company called Generosity, T-E-E. Get it? In high school, he spent much of his time moving back and forth between Ridgeline and Montrose, and although his career has taken him to Vegas, he still has family in western Colorado and still calls the western slope home. 
He said his journey to generosity, that's the name of the company, while he worked for the beverage company and he and his coworkers were let go. Eventually, the idea came to him to start his own iced tea company while trying to make a difference in the world. After more than a decade, he started generosity. Quote, it would be cool if I could just do something to give people something that made it cool to give and easy without something having to drop off money, belongings, or other things that they wanted to give away. He says generosity has three flavors of tea, each with a specific charity on the label. The Humane Society of the United States, National Breast Cancer Foundation, and Operation Homefront. Wesley says that each time a, a bottle is purchased, 10 cents of that goes to whichever charity is on the label. It's all about the charity with these things, so we want to make sure it's very authentic. It's very real. It's not something we're giving some proceeds to charity on the corner of the bottle. It's all about bringing awareness to those charities right up front. Wesley says he hopes his teas and the message they send to people will raise the level of awareness where people are in the world and how easy it can be to help other people. Ah, see there, Kimberly Ross, drinking tea is good for the world. Our friend who does not like sweet tea, but that's okay. We love her anyway, and we appreciate all of you because that'll do it for Herd Tell. Thank you so much for watching on the YouTube and Facebook page for the Big Talker Live, or if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms or the Listen Live time tab for the Big Talker, we sure appreciate you checking out the show. Y'all like it, so we'll keep doing it, and we'll keep doing the full Herd Tells as long as you are listening. If you missed it, the latest long-form podcast was with Dr. Katie Gordon on mental health. Make sure you check that one out as well. So uh, wherever you and yours are across the street, or around the world. We hope this finds you well. We hope you are well fed. And we will talk to you again on Monday for more Herd Tell. Have a great weekend. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.